Year eight. Here we go. Wow, that's just crazy. We launched ECC seven years ago, and back when we were just getting started, we had to do a lot of someday talk, a whole lot of someday talk. Someday we're going to have more than five kids, you know, in our kids program. We just added a couple more this week, I guess, you know. Someday we're going to have a specific program just for our teenagers. Oh, wouldn't that be great? And that's come to pass. Now, someday we're going to have more than just one small group. You know, our congregation was kind of a small group back in, in the day. You know, and, and someday we're going to be sending teams. We're going to send teams into this city. We're going to send teams to Juarez. And it's so fun to see a lot of those some days coming to pass. There's certainly been a lot of changes, a lot of changes over the last seven years. But one of the things that's been the same from day one is that we look at the Bible in a way that we don't look at any other book. We hold a real special place for that one-of-a-kind document. From day one, the Bible's been our go-to. It's our go-to for faith. It's our go-to for conduct. It's our go-to guide when it comes to decision-making for us personally and, and for our church. And I thought, you know, as we kick off this new season, one of the things that we've never done before as a church is we've never spent an entire series talking about why. We've touched on the Bible. We've talked about it in so many different ways every week. We're, we're, we're talking about a passage from it. We're unpacking that. But we've never take, taken a whole series where we've just said why. Why is it of all of the great documents out there, all of the great leaders, all of the great teaching, why do we hold the Bible in such high regard? One of the things that I believe is true, and, and I encourage you to write this in your notes, and we'll explain why I, I worded this the way I did. I believe among the Bible's great books, or among, among the world's great books, the Bible is without parallel. Among the world's great books, the Bible is without parallel. And we'll get to some objective reasons why I believe that that is a true statement. But first, I want to talk a little bit about why this series matters. Not only does it matter because it's something that we hold in high regard, it also matters because you're going to be called on, if you haven't already, to give a personal account of this book. You're going to be asked your opinions, and I believe more and more as we head into this future, you're going to not just be asked your opinions, you're going to be asked to defend them one way or another because people feel real strongly about this book. Here's, here's a news headline that I saw just recently. Um, this one was, what, a couple weeks ago. There was a, a news headline that said, the Navy removes Bible from guest rooms. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether they should or should not have. I just think it's, art, it's articles, it's controversies like this that raise a lot of questions for me. Raise a lot of questions for me. Like, why does everyone get so worked up on either side? I mean, think about that. The Bibles were placed there voluntarily. They were donated. They were donated by a group called the Gideons. Why? Why would the Gideons do that? Of all of the great literature of all time that the Gideons could be placing free of charge in all of these well-trafficked places, why do they pick the Bible of all of the great documents? In fact, let's go even another step beyond that. Of all the great causes that that group, the Gideons, of all the great causes on this planet that they could pick to get behind, of all of the great things that you could be doing with your life, what is it about this book that compels these people, oftentimes at great sacrifice to themselves, what compels them to say, we're going to try to get these 
Bibles in every hotel room, in every public place that we possibly can. And conversely, what's with the relentless aggression from others? Think about that. I can understand the whole civil liberties deal, but here's what I can't understand. In a world filled with so many publications that are so blatantly offensive, in a world filled with so much literature that fuels greed and fuels injustice and fuels rage, in a world where there's so many noble battles to fight against poverty and abuse and disease and outright evil, what about the Bible? fuel such unrelenting aggression? Why does this particular book polarize people like no other book? Now, there is one that's growing in terms of its influence around the world. And in 2015, I think we do need to take a look at the, the Quran and we need to talk about Islam. I feel like this is something that's rapidly growing so fast that it'll be important for us to become educated and and all that, and, and to look at and compare and contrast and all those things. But today I want to focus on what is the most influential book in history. We're going to focus on that not just today, but for the next six weeks that follow, the Bible. What is it about this book that inspires millions of people, billions of people actually, to abstain from behaviors that much of the world engages in? And what about this book inspires people to engage in behaviors that much of the world abstains from? How did this particular collection of documents rise to such a prominent place, not just in our lives here as a church, but on the world's stage? Once again, you're going to be called upon if you haven't already. To not just give your opinion, but to be able to defend it one way or another. And when you do, how well-informed are your opinions? I'd encourage you to write that down. How well-informed are your opinions? I, most everyone has an opinion on the Bible, or two, or three, or four, or ten. How well-informed are they? Do you believe what you believe because you were just taught that growing up? Do you believe what you believe because your college professor said, oh, this or that? How well-informed are your opinions on questions like these? What, here, let's put a bunch of these things. What makes the Bible stand out from other religious books? Why were some Gospels included, others left out? Was the Bible the result of a Middle Ages vote? Was the original content altered over time, especially the content that was passed down through oral tradition? What applied then when it was being written? What applies now? When should the Bible be taken literally and when should it not be taken literally? Does the Bible contain myths and legends? What about the Bible's apparent contradictions. And if you believe the Bible is inspired by God, what do you mean by that? And then here's one. How is the phrase God's word related to the Bible but also distinct from the Bible? Again, these questions aren't going to go away anytime soon because there is no other book like the Bible. Well, let me talk about why I, I believe that this is an objective statement. I have my subjective feelings about it, but here's some reasons why I think it's an objective statement when I say the Bible is without parallel. Let's take a look here. Um, any of you familiar with, we're going to compare and contrast a couple different books. Any of you familiar with this one, Goodnight Moon? Yeah, a lot of collective, uh, if you've read this, right? All right, what I have up here right now, I'm, let's talk about translation. In fact, I encourage you to write this down. When it comes to all of the books ever in the history of literature, all of the works in history, no book's been translated into more languages. That's significant. 
Which of the books of all the books in history, you know, which are the ones that have been translated in most languages? It's not these. I'm just giving you some comparisons up here. All right? Google, in fact, I encourage you to do it. Look up the books that you think should be up here. You know, and, and look and see how many of those are translated in different languages. Look at the classics and, and look at others. All right? No book's been translated in more languages. Here's just some reference point. Good Night Moon, a lot of us. How many of you have, have read that book before? A whole lot of us have. It's been tra that many? Wow, okay. Um, how many of you think you have it memorized? <laughs> All right. Well, Good Night Moon has been translated into 12 languages. So I have about 12 pages of paper up here. Each one of these represents one lang one language, all right? So Good Night Moon translated into 12 different languages. Da Vinci Code, extremely popular book. This one was translated into, as best I could discern, 44 languages. So here we've got roughly 44 pages, each page representing one language. See where I'm going here? All right. Um, Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series. Um, Harry Potter series, extremely popular, actually one of the most popular books um, in, certainly in our, in our lifetime, uh, translated into how many? 67, as best I could discern it. So each page, one language, about 67 languages. All right, let's move on to the Koran. Now this one, it was extremely hard. This is best guess. You go into the internet, you see ranges all over the place. Um, there seems to be a little bit of consensus around 50 um, languages that the complete Quran was translated into, roughly 115 that portions were translated into. So let's go with the portions. About 115 times this book's been translated, at least portions of it translated into other languages. Let's talk about the Bible. Any familiar with the world of reams of paper, right? Reams. How many in a ream? 500. A lot of us know that, don't we? Oh, too much time with copy machines. All right. The entire Bible has been translated into roughly 500 languages, the entire Bible from cover to cover. And then when it comes to portions of the Bible, sections of the Bible, we're talking 2,500 and growing. 2,500. So just in terms of translations, and again, you go ahead, you look up your book, and, and don't just go to one source because you're going to see ranges all over the place, but start comparing. No book in the history of the world has been translated into more languages. Now, let's talk about publication. What I encourage you to write this down is no book has been read by more people. How do you judge how many people have read it? You can't, but you can get some ideas about publication. How many times have these books been published? Let's go with our sample set here. We'll start with Goodnight Moon. Now, we have to change our system here. Now, each piece of paper represents a million, all right? A million copies, okay? So every piece of paper is a million. Goodnight Moon, I have to add 18 pages because there was roughly 20 million of these books that were published. All right? Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code, there's, I have to add to this stack too. I have to add 36 because there's an estimated 80 million copies of this book that have been published. Now, Harry Potter, if you took the entire series, now you're talking, what, half a billion or something like that, but let's talk individual books. Individual books depends on the book. It's you know, estimates between 55, 65 million. If we went with a middle one, uh, around 60 million, I have to actually subtract seven pages here. All right? Subtract seven pages. Now, the Quran, again, estimates all over the place. Uh, it appears as though there's a somewhat consensus around a billion copies. All right? So that would be, if I'm doing my math right, two reams. All right? Let's talk about the Bible. How many copies? 
Well, here we've got uh, each one of these is a million. We've got five there. We have to add seven more because the estimates of the Bible's publication is six billion. And this makes me nervous. I don't think I'm going to leave all these up here. My experimental group is the uh, 930 group, and oftentimes tragic things happen because I don't practice these object lessons like I probably should. So I'll just let you ooh and ah here for a little bit and then take this down. But, but you know, when it comes to some of these objective things, I mean, you just look at this. And I used to be hesitant to say to people, hey, you should really check out the Bible because they could come back and say, There's, there are thousands and thousands of religious books. Why start with that one? Here's why you start with that one. If you're just a citizen of the world, for you not to be well-informed about a book that has had this kind of influence? I mean, just from that standpoint alone. All right, let's continue on. It's, there's not just the, and I encourage you to write this next thing down in your notes, it's not just that the Bible has been published this time, this many times. No book in history has inspired more books about it or more art or more literature. It's not even close. I don't know how you could ever get a number value here, so I won't. But this one, just anecdotally, you know, I consider my office. I took a couple pictures from my office. These are my bookcases. Most of these books are either books specifically about the content of the Bible or reference it in one way, shape, or form. Now, this is just a sliver because if you've ever been to a seminary uh, library, you've got entire buildings dedicated to books about the Bible, and that's just a narrow cross-section of all the books that have ever been written about the Bible. And then you, you add to that, you add art, you add literature. There is no book in history that has influenced more art or literature. So I'd encourage you to write that one down. Now here's another one that I'd, I'd like you to reflect on, and that is this. No book shares the Bible's unique multi-voiced testimony. Each one of those words is chosen intentionally. Multi-voice. The Bible was not a work where one person or even a team of people sat down and wrote it together over the course of several years. It is a collection of documents. And it's not just a collection of documents. This thing has been vetted more than any other book, pulled apart, studied, you know, scrutinized. There's never been a collection of documents like this. Here's a couple bullets that I would put under that. Um, headline, uh, it contains, the Bible itself is a collection of documents. It contains dozens of books from dozens of diverse authors, including kings, shepherds, fishermen, military leaders, prophets, a physician, tax collector, former persecutor of the Christian faith, two of Jesus' brothers. It was written over a 1,500-year span in diverse settings and locations, war and peace, power and persecution, palaces and prisons. It was originally written primarily in two languages, but there's some Aramaic in there too, primarily in Hebrew and Greek. It originated on three continents. These documents come from three separate continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, which in our society doesn't mean anything, but back then that's considerable, considerable when you consider the tribal regional nature there and the struggles of, of, of transportation and even transmitting literature. All right, the book's been dedicated through decades of testimonials and debates, more so than any other document in history, verified through centuries of rigorous study and archaeological discoveries, which are still being made today. This next point says, highly credible witnesses attest to authenticating signs and wonders. Here's what I mean by that. 
many of the Bible's original authors, as they're writing these things down, they're attesting to miraculous signs and wonders that they say verify what they're about to say. So it's not even that they're just passing along wisdom. The authors are saying, hey, just so you know, there were signs and wonders going on around all of this, which is fascinating. And then the next one, passionately adhered to by millions throughout history, often at great, great personal cost. So I ask you, when you consider the, the wealth of criteria like this, not just one or two things, when you consider all of this, can Goodnight Moon say that? No. Da Vinci Code? No. Harry Potter series? No. The Quran can. What is it about this book? You know, it is a unique one. Well, beyond anything we've prevented so far, here's the one that compels me the most. And that's this. And I encourage you to write this down. The Bible promises more than elder wisdom. Now, elder wisdom is not a phrase that's unique to me. In fact, I hadn't even heard it until, it, uh, what has it been, last year. I was having a, a conversation with a, a woman, and, and she wasn't ready to, to receive the Bible as authoritative in her life or anything like that. But as we were talking, she said, you know, here's something that I am compelled by. I'm compelled by elder wisdom. And what she meant by that is she said, you know, if there is wisdom that has been handed down from generation to generation to generation, if there are principles and teachings that have stood the test of time, if there are words that have been not just come up with one person and passed along, but if there are words and truth that cultures have tested and proven true in the lives of generations and generation and generation, that has my attention. It sounds a lot like the Bible. But the Bible's more than that. There's been no collection of elder wisdom that has stood the test of time like the Bible. But the Bible itself testifies to say, no, it's more than that. The Bible is more than just collective wisdom that's being passed down. In fact, one of our elders of elders of our faith tradition is a man named Paul. We refer to him probably just about every other week around here. He's one of our elder of elders in our faith tradition. Several of his letters are included in our Bible. Many of his letters are. Let's take a look at one of them. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 2 Timothy. It's one of the letters attributed to this elder of elders, this man named Paul. And I want to let you know a couple things as we're turning here. The first thing I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. Each and every week, we try our best to keep a stack of them at that table and at that table, and they're there for you. They're there just to take. Don't let, you don't have to let us know. You don't sign anything or anything like that. It's just a gift for you. So we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible. Second thing I want to say just a little bit about this letter. This letter is looked at in our Bible as the last of Paul's letters, the one that came before his death. Um, it's the last uh, letter that we, we have that, that, um, that came from him that's been passed down and vetted through history. So this is a significant letter. In this letter, he's writing from prison. He's, he's been imprisoned under the leadership of a Roman emperor named Nero. If you do your history on Nero, this was not a great time to be a, a Christian in terms of just peace and prosperity, right? Persecution going on. He's imprisoned under Nero. He's writing this letter to a, a man named Timothy, a young man who's going to be one of the people receiving the baton. You know? Paul knows his time is short. He's run the race well, and, and it's time for him to hand off that, that baton to several people, not just one. In our faith, we don't keep all of the knowledge. 
and all the wisdom and all the authority to one person. It's distributed among God's people through the authority that we get through the, the spirit of God and the, and the wisdom of, the, of this word. And so he's going to get this baton off. So these are important, important, important words that he passes on, which could be the last time that he, he makes contact with Timothy. So he writes this, and let's look at Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And he, and he begins by just talking about just the challenges that Timothy is about to face. Paul writes, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. I mean, wow, he was, they were facing some challenges, huh? Any of these look like challenges that some of us might be facing too? So whether it was then or now, you know, Paul is passing along some elder wisdom here. He says, hey, you're going to be coming up against challenges. Let me, let, me, let me, as best I can, equip you as we hand off this baton. And he, he continues on. Let's jump to verse 10. He continues on, and, and Paul writes, hey, you, however, transitionary statement, there's them, there's, there's you, you, however, know about my teaching. You know my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings. You know what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, of the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while the evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have been convinced of, notice these words, because you know those from whom you learned it. You know those from whom you learned it. Next week when we start talking about who wrote the Bible, one of the things we want to pay attention to is, especially in the New Testament, a book didn't get into the New Testament un unless there was some degree of certainty that this was a reliable source. In fact, um, if you were to say, this is a letter from Peter, and you weren't Peter, then right there, toss that thing out. You know, th there was a, it was so important that what was being passed on was being passed on by credible people. And here Paul is saying, hey, you know me. This isn't coming from some philosopher somewhere. This isn't coming from some charlatan. You know me. I didn't make money on this. I, I wasn't doing this for power. I wasn't doing this for glory. The opposite. I'm in prison now. I risked my life. You saw it. And not only, you didn't just see me in public. You saw me in private. You know that the person I presented myself as is the person that I am. You know me. And earlier in this letter, he references his grandma, Timothy's grandma, and Timothy's mom. And he says, you know them. You know them. And he uses the phrase sincere faith. You know their sincere faith. So Paul, as he's handing off his baton, he says, okay, these teachings, all of these things that I'm saying to you, these words that are in my letter, these words that you've heard me preach, the words that, are, that some other people wrote down in what we now call the book of Acts, you know, Luke, what he wrote down, these words are coming from me. You know me. Right? Okay. 
Well, now Paul is going to make a transition here. He's going to turn a very important corner. You're going to see it happen right here in the scriptures. Paul is going to link his teachings, his life, to a movement that began centuries earlier. Paul isn't saying, hey, I'm launching something new. At least not that way, the way we conceive of new. He's saying, I'm just a part of something that's been going on since the beginning of time. And that's important. Christianity itself was new. In, 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 in that sense, in fact, Paul penned these words within 35 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. But here's, here's the thing. In the ancient world, for the most part, if something was new when it came to faith, then it wasn't as credible because they valued elder wisdom. If you're on the scene, hey, I have this new revelation about, you know, God, and I have this new religion that's going to start up, it's like, whoa, then that's probably not real credible because we're going to look for something that stood the test of time, something that could be traced back, something that just doesn't rest in some new whatever. In the, in the ancient world, you wanted to link your faith to a faith that had stood the test of time. And Paul is going to do that. He's, he's saying, hey, Christianity, there's been some new developments, considerable new developments, but Paul is about to link his life and teaching and the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth to the story of God's people. So now let's pick up verse 15. He writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now let's leave this here on the screen because I want to take this piece by piece. And let's start with from infancy. Timothy, um, if he was raised in a pious Jewish home and we at least know his grandma and his mom were on board, um, they would have taught him basically from infancy the Holy Scriptures. At about age five, they would start training young boys in the Holy Scriptures. What were the Holy Scriptures? The Holy Scriptures at that time, there was a collection of documents called the Septuagint. Actually, it was a couple hundred years older than this time. At that time, they already had a collection that is our Old Testament. It's in, and it contains all the books of the Protestant Old Testament and other books that are included in the Catholic Old Testament. All right, so there is a collection of books, the Holy Scriptures, that's likely what they're referring to here. And he said, these can make you wise for salvation. All right, let's move on to what comes next. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this one gets me excited here because I've always struggled. The, the faith in Jesus Christ, now we're getting into what's called the gospel, the good news. And I've always been frustrated because I'm like, what's wrong with me? When I'm asked to, to give a quick answer of how do you become a Christian or a quick answer, what's the gospel? I'm like, what's wrong with me? Billy Graham can do it. You know, a whole lot of churches can do it. They can give you and just, here's four spiritual laws. Here's a sinner's prayer. And, and I could never do that because I'm like, the gospel seems a lot bigger than that. The gospel seems a lot richer than that. The gospel seems impossible to reduce into one prayer or to reduce into four spiritual laws. The gospel seems bigger than the four gospels. It's four books of the Bible. What's wrong with me? And it was so exciting as I've been praying for this series to go, I'm not the only one, <laughs> as I've been reading. 
And I can't wait for week four. Because what I want to do in week four is not say there's something wrong with the sinner's prayer, not say that the four gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, aren't the gospels. I'm not going to say any of that. But what I want to present to you is that the authority of Scripture is big. And it comes from this gospel, this good news. The gospel is the power of God for salvation of those who believe. And it's bigger than a book. And it's bigger than a prayer. And it's bigger than four spiritual laws. It's alive. And it's present in these words. And it's bigger than these words. Amen. It's going to be fun to dive into that. That's week four. But, but let's continue on here. Next phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. This is so loaded, I can't even tell you. Let's start with all scripture. Again, next week, we're going to start to see that Paul had already begun to do this. Paul had already begun to do this. Scripture was held in such high regard. These are the words of God. What Paul's going to do, Paul starts to do this. My words Paul was starting to make the case that his words were on par with the scriptures. That God's word was alive and working through his words too. And that's where this word God breathe, this phrase God breathe comes from. I find as a, as a person who is really skeptical for a season of life and a person who still struggles with all kinds of doubts and questions, this is interesting to me. That word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because every time I do, the people who know how to speak Greek laugh at me, all right? Um, the Greek word there, if you go through all the ancient literature you can find anywhere on the planet, this is the first time that word is ever used. The first time. It's as if Paul is saying, okay, these scriptures are so one of a kind. I got to make up a new word for them. I'm going to take the word theo, I'll at least attempt that one. I'll attempt the word, uh, the theo means God, and I'm going to use this other word that means breathe, and I'm going to create a new word to describe this one-of-a-kind collection of documents that are God-breathed. God-breathed. When God breathes, things happen. In Genesis, when God breathed, what happened? When Jesus breathed on his disciples that last night, the Holy Spirit came upon them. These are God-breathed. These aren't just words. This isn't just elder wisdom. There's a lot of elder wisdom there. Oh, read the book of Proverbs. You'll get smart. You'll get wise. You'll make good decisions, right? Read the words of Jesus. You'll, you'll make a lot better decisions. But it's more than that. More than that. It's God-breathed. Let me give you just one example. When, and many of you have heard this. In fact, we're trying, I'm trying to remember to tell every new member this story. So I'm, I'm sitting um, with my daughter, Emma, uh, in, in 2005. I, I had no plans to start a church. I just knew that something had to change in my life. I, I would have never, ever, in fact, I didn't, one of the last things I wanted to do was become a senior pastor. Church planning wasn't even on the radar, right? Like, who wants that life when you got little kids? And I'm sitting down, I'm having a devotion. I know a change is coming, but I don't know what it is. I'm at a different church, and, and, and we're reading devotions, December 11th, 2005. Now, this is a little kid's devotional book. We're, we're gonna, this is one of the resources that we're going to recommend that you consider. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I don't remember anything else from this whole thing, you know, 365 devotions. You know, but this night, God spoke. And the, 
little tiny corner down here, my Bible verse for the day. How cute is that? Psalm 37, 7. Be still, be patient, wait for the Lord to act. And something happened. So I was sitting there, I'm like, this is for me. I, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it is not hyperbole, because many of you have walked with me, excuse me. This set in motion all the events that led to the start of this church. This word. This is God-breathed. And many of you probably have stories of your own, probably many of them, where you're reading, and most of the time, it's, 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 nothing's coming alive, nothing breathing. But there's those moments. This is for me. This is for us. This is for another person. This is alive. There's more here than elder wisdom. And because Scripture is God-breathed, it is uniquely able, like no other document, to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. The Bible can thoroughly equip us for every good work. So here's an invitation that I have for you is, as we launch this series, as we enter year eight as a church, I'd encourage you to write it down and consider it. Will you commit to a deeper dive with us this fall when it comes to the Bible? Will you consider that? Again, consider it just as a citizen of the world. You know, when, when you look at how different this book is, how unique it is among all of the books from the world, would you, would you consider taking a deeper dive if you're a person that already gives it some credibility, take a deeper dive than, than what you learned in Sunday school. If you're a person who's, yeah, you know, come on, I had that sophomore comparative religion class and they blew the Bible apart. They did, really? They blew it apart. That one teacher blew it apart. Come on, come on. Are, are you, are you going to go with that? I'd encourage you to take a deeper dive with us. Jennifer um, sent me a link to an article that we're going to circle back to, um, God willing, the final week of this series. According to the Barna Research Group, only 9% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. Only 9% of Americans, now this is by their definition, but um, only 9% of Americans say, yep, this is my guide right here. I'm going to live according to this. 9%. And when it comes to 18 to 23-year-olds, the number drops to one half, less than one half of 1%. So especially if you're among the what would be 91% or the 99.5%, I especially would consider you. Just, come on, take these eight weeks. Would you consider taking a deeper dive with us this fall? To help you in that, um, we've got some recommended resources here. Uh, there's a yellow sheet inside your bulletin. We'll say more about these resources as we continue on with the series. Not because they're the best ones in the world, but a combination of we're familiar with them a little bit. They're a little tested and true. We don't agree with every word in every one of the documents or anything like that, um, but we think they're helpful ones. So there's a list of those, and again, as the series goes on, you can take a look at them. I have, I think, all of those resources up here, and we encourage you to take a look. I won't just have them this week. We'll have them in the weeks that follow, so we encourage you to take a look. And if you subscribe to our ECC mail, if you want to turn on your cell phone, um, and take a look in your inbox, you should have a list with, that has links to all those resources. Um, we wanted to try to make this as easy as we can, so there should be links to all of them. If you want to check them out on, on Amazon, there you, you certainly can. Do we make money on these? No, 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 no. We don't. Other people do. We don't. You know, that's not the point. I, our point is not to make money. Our point is to try to equip you. So these are some resources that might be helpful for, for that.
My hope, though, my hope is that when I think about those questions that we opened with, my hope is that every one of us, when called upon, would be able to take those questions and go, yeah, I can give you a somewhat articulate, but at least a better informed response than I can now to those hard questions. That, that, would, be, that would be a hope that I would have in this series. And more importantly, <laughs> oh, I want this for you. I want you to have those moments in your life when you're reading this textbook. I'm getting emotional here, but the God of all creation speaks to you. And he speaks into your individual situation. Exactly. And he brings you a word of hope if you need a word of hope. Or he brings you a correction if you need a correction. Or he brings you, he points you to a next step that would be helpful for you in your life. And that's our hope for this series. So let me seal this time, this teaching with prayer, and then I just have a couple housekeeping details as we, uh, as we, we go forth. So please just join me in prayer. Father, we, we come to you, and, and those of you who call you Lord, um, we come to you and, and, and we ask that you would seal this time. And we're thankful, Lord, that you've given us fresh starts. We're thankful that you've assigned Sunday as the first day of the week. And so, Lord, we come to you this fresh week and we, we say we're sorry for the way we've either neglected your word or abused your word or misused your word. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, to get back on track or to start a, a new, the right step in a new direction. So, Lord, teach us what that means. Point us the right direction. And, and we ask, Lord, as we start this new week, that you'd, that you'd empower us, that we could serve you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do dedicate the offerings that, that we brought this week and and we pray, Lord, that you'll, you'll use them for your plans and your purposes around the world. And, Lord, we pray for, for those of us who joined up, uh, who joined here. We pray for those who joined us here today who aren't sure what they believe or, or are resistant to your word, that, that your spirit would at least open their minds and their hearts enough to give it another look, another deep look. Lord, uh, we, we pray against um, any, any kind of de- deception that, that comes from either our own hidden um, motivations or from, from teachings that, that, that didn't tell the whole story. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.